Hello and welcome to From Balloons to Drones, the official podcast of BalloonsToDrones.com, where we explore the development of military air power from the earliest days of flight to today. I'm your host, Mike Hankins. And I am your host, Brian Lasley. Well, Brian, I don't know if you've looked at the news, and uh, I say this with all seriousness, but it seems like the scepter of nuclear war might be hovering over us again, given some of the current events going on over in the Ukraine region. Uh, There's been some noise about what might happen in the event of a nuclear exchange. Uh, And it got us thinking about, you know, we've dealt with this nuclear question before for a long time. It was what the Cold War was about in a lot of ways. So today we're going to go back to the kind of early period of the Cold War and look at what might have happened had the U.S. and the Soviet Union gone to nuclear war with each other. And uh, to talk about that today, we are joined by Sean M. Maloney, who's the author of Emergency War Plan, The American Doomsday Machine, 1945 to 1960. Sean, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. So, Sean, the the book is about the emergency war plan, but there are important differences between the EWP, uh, the Single Integrated Operations Plan, or PSYOP, and then other operations plans. Uh, Can you discuss the difference in these uh, for just a few minutes for the uh, efficacy of our listeners? Sure. Pretty much, uh, well, a lot of people are familiar with the PSYOP already because of uh, the information that's come out on it in the 60s. And there's a lot of misunderstanding about what was going on in the 40s and 50s. One of the reasons I went and looked at it. And there's sort of three periods here. There's the immediate post-Second World War period, where we're basically going to replay Second World War with nuclear weapons. And that'll transition into a deterrent plan that's capable of being implemented, if necessary, in various degrees, known as the Emergency War Plan for Strategic Air Command. And then there are a number of sub-plans from the regions that deal with that. And then that coalesces by the late 50s, and then it emerges or transitions into the PSYOP. So you mentioned this idea that the early part of this is kind of a replay of World War II, but with nuclear weapons, you know, which kind of begs the question, you know, maybe that did the bomb change things as much as we thought it did? Can you unpack that early plan a little bit? What would it have looked like if that type of exchange had happened? Oh, absolutely. We got to understand the types of weapons we're dealing with. We're dealing with very early fission bombs that yield upwards to about 80 kilotons. And of course, Hiroshima and Nagasaki are 15 and 22 kilotons. So they're extensions of that technology. They're being delivered by bombers with propellers for the most part. There's a limited number of weapons. And the basic idea is industry destruction with those weapons. So basically, it's like a, it's a strategic air campaign that's sped up. So you can take out one factory complex of the weapons instead of repeating repeatedly bombing it like in the Second World War. But for the fundamental, there's no separation between nuclear and conventional war. It's, it's, a, it's an extension of a strategic air campaign that supports all the other activities, naval and air and ground. So essentially after that, we get, you know, not to be glib, but, but bigger and bigger bombs. So how did the invention of thermonuclear bombs change the approach to war planning? It's very interesting because the people at the time uh, are struggling to understand the technology. There's a lot of compartmentalization. The weapon size themselves, when you're getting into the megaton yield weapons, where you can obliterate a city with one shot or a target with one shot. They really have to sit down and figure out what they're, what they're going to do. And they know the other side's going to eventually get them. So you wind up with thinking that it's not a purely deterrent plan. But deterrence is absolutely part of it. We're not necessarily going to fight another world war along previous lines. 
we're going to try and deter one. But if it comes down to it, then the systems will be employed as part of the emergency war plan. So in this case, you're, you're talking about massive levels of destruction with very large weapons, and they're delivered by jet aircraft. So it speeds up. Um, not so much when you get, well, when you get to the 60s, you're dealing with like a 60-minute war. When you're dealing with the EWP, you're dealing with um, hours and maybe a couple of days, as opposed to months in the original planning. Yeah, one thing that comes across in the book really strongly is that these plans are kind of continually evolving. It's not like there's one plan and they're constantly being reevaluated. And like you talk about this early idea, kind of the air battle target system, and then eventually the PSYOP that you were talking about. How does that evolution happen? Like what's driving these changes and what do those changes look like? Well, a lot of it's technological because the, the weapons do get larger in terms of yield, but they also, some of them get smaller and can be delivered by jet aircraft or even propeller aircraft. The problem is what is strategic, what's tactical, what's operational, that all starts to blur. And so certain weapons are necessary for certain types of targets. Like if you want to destroy a submarine pen, you need a penetrating kiloton yield weapon. But if you want to blow away an airfield so it can't be used by bombers, then you create it with like 3.8 megatons. So they basically create like a family of various nuclear weapons types for various targets used for different conditions. So that takes a lot of work. And again, there's a lot of technological change that's driving that. And they ha- the, the people that are doing the planning, the people that are doing the acquisition, the people that are doing the testing, I mean, I was astounded about how rapidly those people had to adapt technologically, especially the aircraft and the, the ability to get aircraft, how to refuel them, and then coordinating all of this. It was a massive enterprise. A massive enterprise. And the interesting thing about this is when you actually look at Curtis LeMay, who's head of SAC at the time, he understands that this is a deter- there's a deterrent function to this. So he wants to make sure that the other side can see it while it's training continuously. They know Western society's penetrated with agents. They know the other side watches with radar and other systems. He wants to make sure that the other side understands that this is a capable force that can penetrate the air defense system and will get through the target regardless. Yeah, that's a line in Strangelove, isn't it? I mean, the whole idea of a doomsday weapon, people have to know about it, right? Exactly. And and again, when you look at EWP, I had to drill into it because there was this sort of idea that it was just massive retaliation and we move on to the PSYOP. It's a lot more, lot more nuanced than that. The deterrent function of it is built into it. It's not just something that's sort of hidden away. The other side has to see what they're in for. And that includes testing as well. It's interesting that you mention Curtis LeMay, because immediately post-World War II, the Air Force is really uh, the only game in town when it comes to the delivery of nuclear weapons. But as as these things develop over time, uh, there's a lot of tension between the services, and then there's tension between the other agencies as well. Uh, So can you talk about some of those friction points or rivalries? The one I really get into in the book is the friction between CIA and the intelligence community, the civilian intelligence agencies and SAC and the Air Force about intelligence collection on the Soviet target. And in many cases, until the U-2 comes along, the Strategic Air Command and some of the other uh, signals and collections agencies, they're the only game in town. And they're doing a lot of things that even the CIA was unaware of. On the uh, inter-service rivalry side, the, the Navy wants to remain relevant. It sees means by which it can remain relevant by having aircraft carriers being able to deliver nuclear weapons in situations that SAC won't be doing it. And so they'll find their niche there, and then they'll move on to submarines. And then the real debate starts to take place about 
who is the primary deterrent and how does that work? Yeah, you mentioned the U2, which is something you talk about a lot in the book. And uh, and you have a lot to say about the role that the U2 specifically filled. But there are other type of intelligence collection methods as well. Can you talk a little bit about the role that ISR, oh. uh, you know, intelligence surveillance reconnaissance might play in the plan like this? There's a lot of work done on overflights, but none of it's integrated into understanding what they're for, how the information is used. The overflights, this is where we're talking about the penetration of uh, Soviet and allied and Chinese airspace uh, to collect information to make the war plan credible. When you're dealing with the overflight and the penetration stuff and the signals collection and the ferreting to collect on the target, it also has a deterrent function. So I'll give a specific example. In 1952, Churchill and Truman agree to let the RAF, using American aircraft with British markings on them, crewed by RAF pilots, conduct a penetration, uh, actually three penetration flights simultaneously over Western uh, Soviet Union up to Moscow. It's designed to collect information on find out specific targets. There aren't any satellites yet. So they're doing radar photo mapping to find airfields and nuclear weapons facilities, etc. This mission is so successful that Stalin is probably deterred from taking actions in other areas. He, his air defense system can't stop it at all. He starts building a large underground facility that's outside the blast radius if they were going to target the Kremlin. So Stalin had designs and pushing the boundaries in Korea, possibly in Western Europe, and he backs off with this. He'll start probing around on the periphery just to, to bug us. But So collecting the information also projects or explains to Stalin that he, they, they, he can be gotten to, and there's not much he can do about it. That results in the creation of a missile defense system for Moscow well, after he's dead. And the collection on that is interesting too. So these were called sense-int flights, sensitive intelligence flights. There were deliberate overflights in daytime and at night, but it was also covert. So the mail plane coming into the embassy had secret cameras on it, and it photographed the early uh, missile defense systems around Moscow. So that was fed back to SAC, and SAC started developing means to get through that. And the result of that will be missiles like surface-to-air missiles. You can fire at the sites and blow them away so you can get to the target and drop the bomb. So that it becomes part of the process. This is why the planning changes so often, because there, you've got this kind of dialogue going on between intelligence collection, systems creation, and then targeting and planning. So I know that our our space listeners like to say that, you know, Sputnik changes everything. So my question to you is, is how does the launch of Sputnik affect these plans? Well, it's interesting because by that point, you have Tom Power, who's running SAC. and he basically understands with Sputnik that it's a demonstration of capability. They have an ICBM capability. They don't know how many. They don't know where. They know that it will expand in the future, so they have to prepare for that. But what it does is it reduces reaction time. So SAC reconfigures itself overseas because at that point, you had B-47 bombers in Britain, Spain, and Morocco. And they had various targets inside the Soviet Union, including Moscow. Once you have a missile capability, can you get that capability off the ground before the missile hits? So they have to reconfigure how they're going to do business. So they withdraw very large wings of B-47s, keep six of them on alert at bases at a time. Then they have to figure out if they're going to get a ballistic missile capability, it can hit North America in 30 minutes. They have to reconfigure the command and control apparatus so it can survive. And so you see this constant response to the probability of an ICBM capability that will exist. And keep in mind, 
there's always people that say, well, there are only a handful of them, et cetera, that can get over to North America, but they're not going to be employed alone. They're basically going to attempt to flood the NORAD air defense system uh, as well as use the small number of missiles they had. So it's not just missiles, it's planes as well, submarine-based missiles as well. Uh, a lot of it very early technologies in the late 1950s, but how many do you need to render the render damage to North America, right? So that's really fascinating when you talk about the Soviet Union uh, flooding the air defense system of the United States, because uh, the United States and Canada kind of come to the same conclusion with the early sky shield exercises, right? Right. Well, in this case, we have to look at all the pieces of the puzzle. So you're dealing with NORAD for the air defense problem, the naval forces for the anti-sub problem, SAC for the strategic air problem, and then SAC year and NATO for the European issue. And then you've got PAC Air Force out in the Far East. So you've got a lot of moving parts. A lot of it's regionalized, but it, it, there is a synergy between all of them. It's, it's not a perfect system, but they understand what the problem generally is in terms of the air defense and the anti-missile problem and the detection problem. But the whole purpose of having all those systems in place is to deter war in the first place. And if the other side's convinced that they can't pull it off, under the conditions that they want, then they're not going to do it. And that's that's what gets lost with a lot of the planning or, or people looking at this. That whole thing is intended to deter and then fight if necessary under whatever conditions we choose to fight under. Fighting against the Soviet Union is one problem that they're solving, but you talk pretty extensively about the other elephants in the room, which are China and North Korea, which kind of have their own planning processes, which are a little bit different. So how does that fit into this plan and, and how, is, how are things different in those arenas? That was really, really interesting attempting to, when I found out about this communist Chinese aspect of the problem, a lot of people forget the Air Force generals who were involved in this had been to China, including LeMay, and LeMay had even, even knew Mao. So they had a level of insight into China that they didn't even have into the Soviet Union. Basically, uh, Nathan Twining asks uh, LeMay to get B-36s prepared to go into China over one of the Straits crises, and they have to figure out what they're going to do. And this carries over to the PAC Air Force commanders where, okay, um, what's the plan here? We only have so many weapons. We've got a large population. And what can we effectively do with this? So the original plan basically is to strip communist China of any industrial capacity and ensure that it's bottled up on the mainland so it can't get to Taiwan or support North Korea against South Korea or Japan. There's a plan that attempted to reconstruct an EWP where they're, they're figuring out how to do that. Later on, when there's a debate over what's a better deterrent, targeting population or being prepared to do a variety of traditional tasks like destruction of the Air Force, destruction of, of industry and that sort of thing, I found a memo basically coming back from PAC Air Force saying, look, I mean, we're not structured or equipped to kill 600 million Chinese. What do you really want us to accomplish here? Like, what, what's, the, what's, what's the best posture that we can put ourselves in and what, what's this all about? Like, we understand the Soviet Union. What are we going to do about communist China? And so the, the planning that comes out of that is, again, pretty much limiting communist China to the continent, trying to keep it away from everything. And you can see when they, they established nuclear logistics to support all of this, and they've got layers of defenses going back into the Pacific on the islands, they're prepared to do that. Uh, when it comes to, to North Korea, that tends to be a sort of tactical operational problem. And a lot of it is this destruction of, of the North Korean Air Force, so it can't provide top cover if they come across the border again. 
So that's very different from targeting the Soviet Union and, and blowing away the, uh, the industry and their air force on a, on a large scale. So they have to have weapons and aircraft that can do that without generating a lot of fallout that's going to hit Japan. And so I found out that uh, a number of weapons were reconfigured to reduce fallout. And I, I suspect that those were going to be targeted at North Korea and, and, and uh, communist China to reduce fallout on, on, uh, in the Pacific. So that's a, that, that was really fascinating trying to work through that. So you mentioned this a little bit, but how did civilian casualties factor into, into the discussions around these various plans? In the early days, when we're dealing with the early EWPs in the forties, I can't see a real, any, any real discussion of it. Maybe it takes place at a higher level or in a, in a side room. But in the view of the target, this is essentially, like I said, it's an extension of the Second World War bombing campaign. So if they happen to be in the area, that's just the way it is. But they're not specifically blowing away civilians for the, sake, for the purpose or sake of just doing it. That's very clear. When we get to thermonuclear period, uh, there's no illusions that people are going to get killed in large numbers. But again, the weapons are structured and they're targeted on the specific facility that needs to be removed as part of the larger plant. And yes, there's going to be civilian casualties, but again, it's not specifically designed to generate civilian casualties. When you get to the late 50s, the debate starts over this. This is where the Navy and people that support it have an idea that just having enough ballistic missile submarines to destroy the population of the Soviet Union would, in their view, be enough of a deterrent, didn't have to have anything else. And the Air Force looks at this, obviously doesn't agree with it. You have a major inter-service debate about that. And at that point, I think it was Thomas White who was in charge. And he's, he's like, we can't do this. I mean, that's not what we want to do. We understand that it's going to happen. We know there's going to be casualties. But to sit there and just use megatonial weapons to kill the population of the Soviet Union or prepare to do that is not enough of a deterrent. The other side can't see the submarines. It's a little too vague in the Air Force's view, and not surprising given the size of it, the budget of it. It's better to have a, an open deterrent that the other side can see and understand what it is capable of doing. So it is a very fascinating problem. And when you get to the PSYOP, you wind up blending both. You actually reduce the yield of, yields of the weapons. I mean, some of the weapons are very large. You're up to 3.8 and then at one point, there's variants that are 18 and 19 megaton yield weapons. And the fallout from that or the damage from that is going to negatively affect friendly forces. So the weapons are reduced to mostly sort of 1.5, in some cases 9, depending on the hardness of the target. But you don't see them uh, jacking the bombs up specifically to kill the population. They try to keep it specifically to generate the effects that they want, which is you know, reduce the other side's ability to cause damage to the West. You know, you're mentioning these different yields and, you know, certain number of megatons, kilotons, things like that, and the nature of civilian casualties and talking about these things. I'm thinking about what civilian casualties means in this context, right? We've seen Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and it's, it's pretty horrific stuff. And a, a larger war of that. Well, in this case, you're talking about blowing craters a mile across, right. 500 feet. If you're, if you're ground bursting it, I mean, you're, you're erasing a city with a single weapon. And in some cases, they're going to drop multiple weapons on the target just to make sure. Like when you look at Moscow, they know not everything's going to get through. So 
obviously a single weapon on Moscow is going to generate incredible damage, but they want to make sure. They probably have four or five aiming points, and any two of those would uh, generate the effects that they wanted. And keep in mind that the Soviet Union is highly centralized. Mm-hmm. So the five-year plan is in Moscow. I mean, you, you wipe out Moscow, you end the ability of that regime to function at, during that period. It doesn't have the means of operating in a decentralized fashion. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I was getting at is, you know, at the museum, we did a lot of visitor testing a while back and and found out that a, a lot of visitors, just kind of general public visitors, especially younger ones, were very interested in nuclear weapons because they hear about them in the news a lot, but didn't necessarily have a sense of what they were or what made them different. They're like, oh, it's just a bigger bomb. Like, what does that mean? Can you explain a little bit more about what does make these bombs so different? And you've said a little bit of it about it already, but if you could expand a little bit, like... When you're dealing with... And there's an incredible debate about this in the 50s. The debate over what the actual effects of these weapons are Mm -hmm. uh, exists between RAND Corporation have one form of measurement, the Air Force has another, and the Navy has another. Not only the specialized mechanism of how the weapon operates, it's what comes out of it, the effect of it. So blast is one, heat is definitely one. But then when you're dealing with fallout, where you have irradiated material from the strike site landing further downrange, depending on the wind, that has an impact. And then there's electromagnetic pulse, which depending on how the weapon is burst or under the whatever conditions, it can damage and destroy electronics further away from where the weapon's detonated itself. Nuclear weapons have multiple effects, and you can manipulate the weapon to generate a specific effect but or reduce some of the other effects. It's called partitioning. And that's, those are the big secrets in the 1950s is, is, is how, like the air defense weapons, they pump out x-rays that can penetrate aircraft and damage bomb components so they fizzle. Uh, you don't necessarily have to hit the aircraft to destroy it, right? And th- these, again, these are some of the biggest secrets of the day. But most people just see the explosive part of it. And they, mm-hmm. they, they, they hear about radiation, but they don't really appreciate it. Now, I would argue I didn't appreciate it till I went to uh, Chernobyl a couple of years ago. Hmm. And I'm, I'm in Chernobyl getting the tour and my wife and I are there. We're, we're, we're there to survey something specific. We've got a guide and we've got our dissimetry with us and it's a beautiful summer day and the dissimetry starts going and you can't tell. It, it's just, it's a beautiful day out and yet the, the thing's clicking and you know that you got to move because hmm. you're going to get hurt. But you can't see that. Wow. So there's this, there's this fear or this anxiety that builds up over both, both the unknown. And if you don't have the means to detect it, you're in trouble. But it took, it took me going to Chernobyl to experience that myself, to get a sense of that anxiety, mm-hmm. uh, the unknown of what the effects can be even long, long years, years and years, decades afterwards. When we're dealing with the 50s, I'm not sure everybody fully appreciated that on a personal level, mm-hmm. on a theoretical level, maybe, yeah. So, Looking forward now, as we have kind of examined this kind of Cold War period, and now with kind of what I was alluding to in the intro, this kind of some renewed talk of might a yep. nuclear war be happening again, what is the importance and what is the legacy of kind of looking back on, on this period and what might it mean for us now? Well, I, I'm deeply involved in monitoring this as part of my work, mm-hmm. and I've been tracking the evolution of the crisis since early 2021. And one of the things I've specifically been watching is the, uh, the nuclear signaling that's going on between all sides. 
this is happening on levels we haven't seen in 30 years. In this case, when we're dealing with social media and other forms of technology, we have the ability to see things that we couldn't see before. The other side knows that and then pumps information into the system to let us know what they're doing, what they're thinking, or how they're responding to something. So since I would say last fall, we, I've watched that increase dramatically. So we're, de- we're dealing with a, a nuclear crisis here, but it's really complex. There are a lot of people trying to compare it. Like there's a journalist that keeps trying to compare it to the Cuban Missile Crisis. This is not like that. This is much more protracted. It's less acute. We don't see DEFCONs changing. Whether or not the DEFCON system is still functional or in existence is questionable. But you can definitely see the, the pieces moving on the chessboard. Definitely. Do you remember in 13 Days, the movie, when uh, the McNamara character uh, berates Admiral Anderson for under, not understanding the new language? Remember yeah. That? Yeah, it's a language, yeah. he's saying, as the ships are shooting at each other. Yeah. In the movie 13 Days, the McNamara character berates Admiral Anderson's character but not understanding what they're looking at. And he explains that this is a form of language between Kennedy and Khrushchev. And, and basically, that's what we're dealing with now, except in a more sophisticated form, with the ability to see aircraft moving around and tweet when systems are in a particular place. So, so now we've got a, a new language with several dialects, Twitter, air traffic control data, and so on. Okay, and Google Earth, even that. So both sides are using those means to convey intent and capability and that sort of thing right now. So I've been watching that very closely. And it's, it's so it's not like the given missile crisis where it's a compact defined space of time of, of a month. In this case, it's been going on for months in, in a variety of spheres. So we don't see everybody suddenly stepping up to DEFCON 1 staring at each other. There's just there's a lot of movement back and forth. And some of it's deliberately designed to confuse information operations, uh, to confound, generate doubt, but at the same time, signal intent. And so it's, it's been pretty fascinating watching this. So the question becomes, we're back, we're back to deterrence theory, and it turns out old deterrence theory doesn't quite work here. Because the other side uses what we call gray zone warfare to accomplish its objectives without pushing the boundary, but at the same time using strategic nuclear forces to signal that uh, maybe we shouldn't escalate in certain areas. So then on our side, we do essentially a similar thing. We're not engaging in gray zone warfare the way they they are, but then we move systems around. Give an example. You never, ever tell anybody where your ballistic missile subs are, right? Like that's stealth and secrets. They go hide in the middle of the ocean, so they can't be detected and destroyed. When the chief of naval operations tweets that a ballistic missile submarine USS Nevada is visiting uh, Guam, and then another tweet goes out that there's a uh, an unnamed submarine tender visiting Saipan. It's, he's making it very clear that the capability is there, it's ready to go, and it can be reloaded. There's a number, I got several hundred examples like that. People are seeing parts of it, but they're not able to assemble it into a narrative. And that's what I've been doing, trying to figure that out. So the, the question on all the readers' minds is, should we be worried about World War III right now, or are we okay? Well, I don't have the answer to that. That's up to Putin. <laughs> and uh, the people that may replace him. So we're, we are in a period of instability when we're looking at the Russian government right now. So the question becomes this. So at what point do they authorize nuclear weapons use? How is it done? Will the people comply? This is not the Soviet Union. This is a completely different mm-hmm. animal. And the most important aspect of this, which people have, we've never had to deal with before, 
is that the Russian Orthodox Church is intertwined with the uh, command and control apparatus. When you go into missile silos hmm. and bunkers, you see iconography up on the walls for the uh, for the various trades, right? They are part of the process. They have already deemed use of nuclear weapons acceptable for use against satanic powers, which is us. Uh, we've never been confronted with that before. The other problem becomes when you're dealing with, so, or in this case, Russian nuclear command and control, it doesn't necessarily follow Soviet command and control methodologies. So understanding how that works and would people at the pointy end push the button or fly the plane or do whatever? We don't know. Of course, they're banking on us not knowing that or not being able to understand that uh, to generate enough obscurity so they can accomplish their objectives. They want us to be afraid. But as long as we've got the ability to deter them and we can show them that we can do and conduct warfare on whatever level they choose to, the chances are they're going to back down. So we're back to 1950s, being prepared, demonstrating credible, a, a credible capability, and making clear to them that if they do anything, the missile's going to get through regardless. All right. Well, for those readers who want to dive into that 1950s era and see how the U.S. was planning to handle this problem back then, the book is Emergency War Plan, The American Doomsday Machine, 1945 to 1960, by Sean M. Maloney, and it's from Potomac Books. Uh, thanks so much for being on the show. We really appreciate it. Well, thanks for the invite. This is an important topic. and The more people know about it, the better. Yeah. Where can we find more stuff from you online? Actually, the Potomac uh, Books website, you can acquire everything on this from, from them. I'm writing the uh, Soviet equivalent of this right now. See how they were going to do things, or how they thought they were going to do things. Well, fantastic. We'll look forward to that one. All right, Brian, where can we find more of you online these days? So you can find me at www.brianlastly.com and infrequently on Twitter. All right. Well, I'm at mwhankins.com and all of us are online at balloons2drones.com. Our music was created by Jason Davis at Digital Fish Media, which you can find on Facebook at digitalfishmedia.org. If you'd like to send us an email or submit an article for publication, please go to balloons2drones.com slash contact. Thank you. And we'll see you next time.